Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. My name is Shannon Lee, and I'm thrilled to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called The Anchor and the Seabird. And what I really don't have time for is stress. It, it doesn't mean I don't have stress. It just means I don't have time for stress. I did an IG Live with Christina Clancy about her novel, Shoulder Season. She has been on this podcast before, and I was really excited to have her back. Christina is the author of The Second Home and, of course, now Shoulder Season, and her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Sun Magazine, and in literary journals including Glimmer Train Stories, Hobart, Pleiades, the Minnesota Review, and elsewhere. She has a PhD in creative writing from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and lives in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi. Hi, <laughs> I'm always so nervous when I join an Instagram Live. I'm like, am I doing this right? I know, me too. It's not very user-friendly, <laughs> and I'm sorry about the stress. I feel like my job is just to calm people down for a while at the beginning you of every what, IG Live. All my friends, my writer friends, whenever they have a live event with you or an event with you, I was like, I'm so nervous. I'm going to talk to Zibby. And I'm always like the Zibby whisperer. I'm like, no, she's so great. She's so easy to talk to. So I wasn't nervous at all. Oh, good. Well, thank you for, for doing that. <laughs> Nobody should be nervous talking to me. Oh my gosh. I'm like, whatever. But you're, I just you're, wanna... a, power, you're a powerhouse. Oh, I mean, every hardly. day you should have okay. your own news station just for all your news. Just wait. <laughs> Who knows what's coming next? <laughs> Lots more. I literally have so many ideas that I want to do. I'm like... 
I, I can't even, I don't even know what to do. I, I just want to keep, uh, anyway, if only there was more of me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Okay. Shoulder season. I read this whole thing in kind of one long, long sitting. No way. <laughs> I had a plane ride. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I got so invested in your characters and, you know, you really kind of sold me on this you know, career path. <laughs> I know it was sort of a question mark and, you know, Cherry didn't exactly meet with the most accepting of responses when she decides to do this, mm-hmm. but she really makes a strong case. So start with why I understand that this is where your, your husband grew up and all of that in Troy, West Troy, Michigan or whatever. Tell listeners a little bit more about the backstory and why you decided to write about this topic. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I never would have guessed I would be the person to write about a Playboy bunny. I've never really been that personally interested in Playboy myself, but I always knew that there was a Playboy resort in East Troy, Wisconsin, which is just bizarre. You know, it's so strange to think that people would, or that Hugh Hefner would ever even think that he could get into small town America and make it acceptable. But one thing that's interesting is that Playboy really has changed over the years. You know, in 1969, when the resort opened, it was considered really classy. So people's views, it's really fascinating to talk to different people about their impressions of Playboy because it changes depending on how old people are and what their thoughts are about it. But I was I started interviewing some former Playboy bunnies because I wanted to have a side character have, have worked there. And it was just like for background information. And then I started talking to some former women who some women who had done that, and they were mostly in their 60s. And they spoke so lovingly of the job, like it was the most fun they ever had. They learned so much about men, about life. It opened up the world to them. It was right down the, the road from Alpine Valley, which is where Stevie Ray Vaughan died, that big Alpine music amphitheater. So I just, all of a sudden, I didn't care about my other book I was writing. I just wanted to follow that and see like, what was it like to be a Playboy bunny? And now that my book is out there, I'm actually really shocked that given the ubiquity of Playboy in our culture and how long it's been around, nobody that I know of, maybe you, you've you read something with a Playboy bunny as a protagonist or a character, nobody, nobody has approached Playboy in literary fiction ever, as far as I know. So I mean, I think that says a lot about how judgmental a lot of people are about the jobs that these women had. And what I learned is that the women, especially at the Playboy Resort, which was unlike the clubs in every way, you know, like Playboy bunnies would actually supervise Easter egg hunts. They would work in the game room with the children. They would serve hot chocolate when kids were skiing. So they just had a really, they were drawn from the small towns that were near the resort And they made so much money. And in 1981, when this book was set, if you're in a small town, there's not many other options available to you. So I totally respect the decisions that the women made. The work was really challenging, very hard. And I feel like I want to give some props to some of the women who did that. You know, you also talk about how in the community, people were like, no, you're going to set women back by taking on this job. And Sherry's kind of like, how am I propelling women just by working at like an insurance company? How is that helping women? And right. Like, it's, you know, abuses women all the time. Like that boss is a terrible guy. You know, why would I do that? And I see what she's saying, right? Like one person's job is not going to change the world. But I feel like, you know, as there is bias now, there was bi- so much bias then. And yet, who knew that these were like family amazing resorts? Like the fact that there were even kids there 
at all, whether or not they did the Easter egg hunts with the bunnies. I mean, it was a totally different time and a totally different place. And how interesting to get a little glimpse into that. I could see why you were so fascinated. Yeah, it's just a weird time in our history, you know, to think about what it was like then. And I do think that, you know, back in in 1981, it's really hard to view the decisions that the women made through the lens of today. You know, I think that it really was kind of different. But, you know, women's work is hard and challenging no matter what. But I've talked to so many Playboy bunnies. Like one of the bunnies I talked to was 20 years old. Her husband was in prison and she had two kids. And she is a wealthy business owner now. And she said it's all because she saved the money that she made from working at the resort so she could do something else. So in some ways, maybe the job did set back, like, you know, women's progress a bit. But uh, the women who were uh, taking advantage of a bad situation or, or a bad system actually used that to their advantage so that they could buy a car. They could go to college. They could move out of the small town. So I have a very complicated, nuanced view. And I've also learned a lot about Hugh Hefner. You'll notice he's, he doesn't get any play in the book. You know, he's referenced, but he's, he doesn't have a scene because I wanted to keep the focus on the women who worked for him. But he has a complicated legacy, too. You know, I was just reading about in Miami. He bought back a franchise so that he could, because he heard that it was segregated and he wanted to make sure it was open to people of all colors. So, he, you know, he, he did do some things that were very forward thinking. Interesting. No, I loved how you really explained why all the women were there and sort of followed all the narratives of many of her friends and Val and the girl who her brother had 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 gotten burned and she had to work on it. I mean, oh my gosh, some of the stories were just like really poignant and, and, you know, you see, you know, you see why, like what makes people do things like it's, job. I don't know. I, I, I found all of the stories. So the interwoven story is like very compelling and understandable why they would then, you know, shove their feet into these like painful shoes with the blisters and they couldn't sit down and they couldn't pick things up off the ground and they couldn't bend forward too much and how they had to sort of be constrained by so many things that reminded me of Vegas. Honestly, it's like, it's almost like the bunnies and the resorts were sort of like a waitress in a, in a Vegas casino today. It It felt like. Yeah, when you think about it, there's still lots of jobs that are like bunnies. You know, there's Hooters girls. You know, there's definitely positions like that still. I mean, it's, it's. I'd like to think we've come a lot farther than we actually have. But you know, it's it was a it definitely was a reality of their time. They they took on a lot to do that job. I also like how Sherry, Sherry or Shelley, I always mix up those names. Sherry really sort of came into her own. Right, she had never thought of herself as beautiful. She had never had really any confidence in herself or her looks and had been, you know, really sidelined by her mother's illness for a while. And just like in that tiny world where it becomes so small when you're just caretaking all the time and had really put her own life on hold. And she's finally like, well, I'm going to take care of myself. And you see her like becoming more beautiful, literally, as she's sort of, you know, as shedding this layer and the, and the layer of grief. I mean, at the end of such a long illness and you have that wonderful scene in the car with her friend where she's just like, she finally lets herself mourn and grieve. So tell me about the whole loss. Like she's essentially an orphan. I mean, she is an orphan, really. I mean. Right. Well, I wanted to have a character who had a very stunted adolescence because, I mean, for myself, even when I was growing up, I never had brothers or anything. And I always thought that men were so mysterious and different from me, like that they were a totally different species. So I was kind of drawing on that 
feeling that I had when I was growing up too. And I wanted to have a character get a job where she's totally unprepared for everything that's out there for her. And I know readers get really frustrated with Sherry and that's on purpose. You know, she makes a lot of bad decisions, but she's not in a position to make good decisions necessarily because she's had no reason to know better. And actually, when you think about it, some of the mistakes she makes end up paying off for her in the end. And if she knew better, she wouldn't have made some of those mistakes that work out. But one of the reasons I wanted to write about Sherry being so inexperienced and making mistakes is really this book is about, I was asked by a bunch of women in their 60s that when I was working on on my kind of book that led me to this book, and they said, what are you writing about? And they said, we hope you write about women our age because we feel like nobody writes about us. They just write about younger women. And we were talking about how when you get older, the mistakes you make when you're younger never feel like they're very far away. Like some people never let go. They never move on. So I wanted to have Sherry have something tragic happen that she, as she gets into her 60s, she never lets go of it. She just doesn't, she can't give herself permission. So she has to then go back and revisit what she did when she was younger and think about, you know, the, that, the stupidness. But we've, I think we've all made mistakes. And the randomness, right, of the th- of the series of things that lead to some of the biggest moments in your life and how preventable they can seem in retrospect. And yet that ends up being the thing, that defining element. And it could have so easily been otherwise. Right, yeah. It's hard to talk about some of the things that happen without giving away the big twist. Yeah, that. <laughs> I was pretty vague, uh-huh. <laughs> right? I thought I was pretty big. You were perfect. You know, some of Sherry's interactions with the men, I found myself sort of holding my breath as she would go off. Well, I don't want to give things away, but as she has these encounters over the course of her tenure and gets herself in situations that, you know, just made me so nervous. I felt like this mother hen sort of watching Mm -hmm. And being like, oh my gosh, don't go there and don't go on that and that trip. And oh my gosh. And you see men sort of in different roles and how they can exploit women or they can be kind or they can, you know, all these different ways when the man sort of has the power in that situation. So tell me a little bit about that and how you decided which interactions to have with which types of men, like how you, how you sort of scoped that out. Well, you know, it's interesting when I was working on the second home, one of my friends, Jay Ryan Straddle, who wrote Lager Queens in Minnesota, uh, Lager Queen in Minnesota, he read an early draft of it. And I have a villain in the second home. And he said, make sure your villain isn't too much of a straw man because men are complicated just like women. And, you know, I'd kind of flesh him out. And thanks to him, like the second home is actually going to become a TV series. And it oh. was optioned, yeah, and it was optioned by Nikolai Koster-Waldau from Game of Thrones, who wanted a part where he could play a villain who was complicated. So that Ooh. totally paid off that advice. But I was mindful of that when I was writing this book because I thought I want to show men as complicated just the way women are complicated. You know, some of the bunnies that we meet, you know, like we think Val's going to be so horrible. We think Mitch is going to be this terrible guy. You know, like the different people that we meet end up maybe not being quite as bad as we think. And so when I finished my first draft of it, I sent it to my editor and she said, you know what this book really is doing is it's exploring our multitudes. You know, we're not all bad. We're not all good. And I think that's like, that's what I try to do with my fiction. I try to present, you know, especially like everyone talks about cancel culture, but people are complicated. They can do bad things, but does that mean that we have to write them off? Like we, we can sometimes just think more holistically about what led them to make the decisions they make, what they're capable, how much they can change. So that was my goal with the men. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Wow. So are you involved, back to the TV thing for two seconds, are you involved with the like the adaptation or what's what's that been like for you? I don't think I'll be that involved. I think with the debut writers, my agent said, you know, they usually, you, you don't have as much say with a TV series. And, you know, I've been paying close attention, you know, just like when I read now, now that I'm a writer, I think I, I like read a book the way an x-ray technician reads an x-ray. You know, you, you think about the story, but you also, I'm sure you do this all the time too. You think about, well, how is this structured? How are they getting away with telling this story? So I've been watching TV series, and I think he was inspired a lot by Big Little Lies, by the role that Andrew Sarsgaard plays with Nicole Kidman. Yep. And that's he plays her husband in the show. And I've been watching that show and thinking about how is that structured? And it's like you have one big question, one dramatic question that the series follows, but then each of the six episodes has its own arc. And so I don't know that that's in my wheelhouse to write like that yet. I think I need to learn that. I think I have a lot of humility thinking that television's a totally different beast. That was also like the best show. I mean, oh, wasn't it great? I mean, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I usually don't watch very much TV and I've been really enchanted by a lot of the shows lately. Yeah. Like Mare of Easttown and White Lotus I had so much fun with. Loved. Like, <laughs> So good. Last night, I actually, I hardly ever watch TV, but I was like, just trying to 
get my mind off things. And I watched Scenes from a Marriage. Have you seen that on HBO? No, not yet. Oh, wait, is Scenes from Marriage the one with a couple that's breaking up? It's with Jessica Chastain. Jessica oh, Chastain. no, I haven't seen that one. It's really good. It's like you literally are in someone else's bedroom. And I don't know. It was like, I love these sort of like relationships. And I'm thinking to myself, nothing's really happening, but this is like everything, you know. <laughs> Oh, that sounds great. That reminds me of a line Jerry Durzon, one of the characters in Shoulder Season, where Sherry's making some conclusions about him. And he's like, never assume you know what goes on inside someone else's marriage. So, yeah, actually, I felt like, you know, this sounds hokey. I felt like the town of East Troy or West Troy or whatever it is was also a character in the book because you see that developing alongside the characters and what happens with, you know, I mean, Michigan and the whole culture of, you know, all of it. And what happens with the town square. And, you know, it's so interesting how towns grow up alongside their inhabitants as well. Yeah. And I think it's the way people see it. You know, I wanted to, it's actually in Wisconsin, but I wanted to have Sherry, you know, like most people from small towns, they think they're too big for their town and they want to leave. But I, I am completely enchanted with East Troy. I, you know, I was watching this episode of The Bachelor when Chris Sewells was the star and going back to our television conversation, this yeah. was years ago, but he was from a farm. And I remember I, I watched that episode. And when the ladies arrived for the home date, they played horror music, literally <laughs> horror music. And I was like, you know, if you're from the Midwest, farms are actually really beautiful. You know, there's, it's, it's really gorgeous here. I mean, the rolling hills and, you know, these glacial kettle moraines. And I wanted to actually be almost like a tour guide and show that Sherry could take a, take for granted what was right under her nose. But East Troy has summer camps and like history of mobsters like Al Capone would hang out in that area and hide slot machines. And it's really close to Chicago. So you have that infusion. So I think it's a it's a beautiful, interesting place. So I, I you know, just like I wanted to show that there's more to being a Playboy bunny than people think, there's also more to a small town than people think. Very true. You have a line that you said, Sherry's mother once told her that when you're young, you have good days and bad days. But when you're older, you have good years and bad years. So this is totally off topic, but is there a year of yours that was sort of a bad year? Oh, well, I think like for, although I can't really say that the COVID was a bad year. Like you had, a, I'm, I'm sure that you had a really bad year, like knowing what happened in your life. Like that would stand out. For me, I didn't have any personal loss from COVID and my kids were grown. So it wasn't as horrible. And my book came out and even though it wasn't exactly, I said it was kind of like the Edgar Eager book, Half Magic, where the kids, I don't know if your kids ever read those books, but like where they find half of magic coin and every wish they make, they get half of it. So I uh-huh. felt like last year was kind of like a half magic year for me because I, I was fun to have my book come out and then finish my other book and get that out. But I think a hard year was the year I graduated from college. Like my dad died that year and Jerry Durzon in the book is kind of inspired by my dad. Like I give him a little bit more life there. And there's a sense of loss, you know, where, where you feel like you lose that structure in your life and you're not quite sure what to have happen. And I broke up with my boyfriend and as bad as that year was, it's, it really helped reshape me. You know, I think sometimes those bad years end up becoming good years later. You know, like you learn a lot from them and develop kind of a second spine from going through those hardships. Wow. Amazing. So when you, how long did this take to write? Well, so it's fun because you have your own publishing company now. So you're probably going to be the person telling people to do this, but I had a two book contract. So I had to write my second book in a year. So I was a little arrogant, to be honest. I was like, even though it took me forever to write the second home, I was like, I can do this. No problem. And then I walked into a door and got a concussion. (laughs) 
So I know. So for like two months, I couldn't even look at words. Like they'd float up off the page. Uh, It was terrible. But you know, in retrospect, I think that helped because it forced me to slow down and think. And I got to talk to people and hear their stories and just kind of like marinate in the ideas that I was kind of working on. And I think that's how I made that deadline. I mean, it definitely, it was great to work with an editor. My editor, Sarah Canton at St. Martin's Press, could not be smarter or better to work with. Like she had great feedback. She was really great about helping me focus on like, what story are you trying to tell? And this is Sherry's coming of age story. And that really helped me like streamline my thoughts around it. Because before I had all these side stories and little dramas and they didn't really need to be there. So that helped. So it's, it was helpful to have an editor definitely through that period. I'm really lucky that I had that. Wow. Yeah, I think you're one of the first people to say that a concussion ended up being a really good thing. So I know. love it. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it was. have you ever had tinnitus? Have you ever had your ear ring? Not really. Oh, that was the worst part because after I hit my head, it was like a bell going off in my head constantly. And I'm so lucky it went away. I wasn't sure it would. I thought, how am I going to hear my ear ring constantly for the next for the rest of my life? Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the theme for today is turning bad things into good things. Bad lemons things. into lemonade. Exactly. <laughs> my husband was telling me that lemons actually aren't even a naturally occurring fruit, that they were like bred between different like different fruits to manufacture the lemon. I don't know. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> you're not, but we were having a le- lemons to lemonade conversation and he told me that. No, no. Every time I say lemons to lemonade, I'll be like, but. <laughs> yeah, but. Who knew? So what are you working on now? Now I'm working on a book that's set in 1927 at a lakeside resort. It's really interesting. It's, you know, in the 1880s, all these people from Chicago, these Gilded Age, they call it the Newport of the Midwest is, is Lake Geneva, where, where it's shoulder season set. So there's all these amazing estates from the Wrigley's and so on. And in there or along the lake is a compound that of 10 houses. There's five on each side and they're these beautiful, cute old Victorian cottages that are painted white with green roofs. And in the middle is a clubhouse. And I saw this, this compound and I read about it and they said when it was started, they built the compound or they built the houses without kitchens so that the people who summered there would have to take every meal in the clubhouse and not only that, but the people who summered there all lived on the same block on the same street in Chicago. And it was like the middle of COVID. And <laughs> I was with my family all the time. I was listening to my husband click his spoon against the bowl and chew almonds and thinking I was going to die. And I was like, what if you're with all these people all the time? You can't even escape in the summer. And, and what if you don't like them? So, you know, I always tell people that novels, a lot of people will say, you know, a novel comes from a, an anecdote and they'll say, oh, this thing happened to me. You should write about it. This should be your next novel. But that's not really where novels come from. They usually come from a question. And so for me, the question is, what if you're around all these people all the time and you don't like one of them? So that that's what's kind of propelling this new book. But it's, it's really research heavy because it's set in 1927. I read that Bill Bryson book, 1927, and it made me want to set a book there. And now I'm reading Immortals, The Age of Civility. Or rules loved, of civility. Oh my gosh. Loved rules of civility. Loved. That is a, I mean, that's just a remarkable book and the writing is so good. So I'm, that's a great model for me to just think about, you know, how I was saying the x-ray thing, like I'm totally taking that book apart as I, as I read it. So I'm about three quarters of the way through and so impressed. Okay. So advice for aspiring authors. 
You know, I think that I hear a lot of aspiring writers say that they think they're bad writers. And I think they give up on themselves too soon. You know, I think that writing is necessarily really hard and it's really frustrating. I know you've had my friend Lauren Fox on your, you know, you interviewed her. She wrote Send for Me. And we're in a writing group together. And we spend a lot of our time texting each other about just how hard it is. And I think we need to remind each other that that's part of the process, that it's totally normal, that it doesn't mean you're a bad writer. It just means it's a lot more work than you think it's going to be. So with that in mind, I think I'd say, like, try to keep your head in your manuscript as much as you can, you know, because I think if you if you put it away or you start thinking that it's bad, then you might lose energy and momentum. But if you can just look at it every day, think about the characters, immerse yourself in that world, that really helps you stay with it and keep writing and, and knowing that it's just going to be a lot, of hard, a lot of hard work, a lot of revision and getting rid of stuff. And, and it doesn't mean you're bad at writing if you have to cut everything you've written. Like Stephen King has this great line where he says something like it's, he doesn't get to page one until he's gotten to page 300, you know? And I think that's what it's like for a lot of writers. You just, you know, the first draft, you're just telling yourself the story. Like the book I'm working on right now, I'm 137 pages in. And I wouldn't be surprised if I have to start it all over again and write it in first person and trash it all. Amazing. Good advice. Good advice. It's just oh. part of this. All part of the process. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for talking about shoulder season. I know this came out a while ago and we're, I don't know why we're doing this today, but here we are and great. Oh, I'm, well, it is shoulder season now, so it's actually perfect. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. In, do, do you know what shoulder season is? Have you heard that phrase? Remind, it's like the time between, t- between something and something else. Yeah, between peak and off peak. Yeah. So it's it, we've worked on a number of levels because and and so right now technically is kind of we're heading into shoulder season. Oh, we're in it. So there is a reason. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Zippy, truly, congratulations on everything you're doing. And I'm really excited. One of my friends here in Madison just said she has a book coming out with you next year or in oh. 2023. So I'm just I'm thrilled for everything you're doing. And I think writers are so lucky to be able to work with you. And readers are going to have some awesome new books to read. So thank you. Yeah. Kudos. I'm really excited. It'll be great. Well, we're excited for you. You're one of those people you root for. Because you, I mean, I mean, you read my book. Like it was great. All right. Well, Christina, thank you. I can't hear you anymore. I don't know why, but thanks for coming on and we'll stay in touch. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.